Father God, the greatest need of our souls right now in this room and in the room, the rooms back there with the kids, is to see you in the fullness of your glory. Through the reading of your word and through us looking and exploring at what the passages we have today, Father God, and, and how we, we pull apart the, the different pillars of our church, things that we hold true, Father God, to shine light on your beauty and your worth, I pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts, work powerfully in my heart, Father God, so that all of us would see you as the treasure that you are. I pray that your hand would move in powerful ways to cause these pillars that we hold as a church to come alive, be real to us, things that we can hold fast to our entire life, no matter where we go, no matter what church we're at, Father God. I pray that you would do that today and do that over the next uh, four weeks, Father God. In the name of Jesus, amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So last, uh, this week and the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be in a series called uh, Pillars in the Prophets. And that was obviously the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Our pillars are, if you're not familiar with them, the centrality of Christ, the sufficiency of Scripture, family of faith, and love where you live. A lot of alliteration, assonance in there to help us remember what they are. Those are the four things that represent kind of our heart at uh, Risen Hope, what we hold firmly to. It's our conviction. Um, and we believe that these four realities, we, we try to go into them every year in different parts of Scripture, we believe that these four realities um, are important, to be, important enough to be pillars because they are everywhere in Scripture. They are throughout the entire Bible. They are woven throughout all of God's narrative. And so God willing, over the next month, we'll be looking at these pillars again, but this time we're going to be looking at them exclusively in the prophets, in the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament, and ask the question, were these four realities that are uh, in the life of God's people now, 
we would all agree that these are parts of what it means to be the church, were they present 600, 700, 800 years before Jesus walked the earth? Are these kind of like novel innovations that the church has developed over time, or are these realities that were anchored in God's heart from the very beginning? And by looking at the prophets, we're going to ask this question specifically about that section of books. And so today, we're looking at the centrality of Christ. Centrality of Christ means that for risen hope, Jesus is everything to us. He is everything. He is front and center at all times. Without Jesus as a church, without Jesus individually, we have nothing. And this passage that we just read from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, which you may have heard this scene described before or read this before, um, this passage is deeply connected to Christ and deeply connected to the centrality of Christ in our lives. And we see this explicitly in the book of John. John 12, verse 36, actually tells us why Isaiah 6 is part of the centrality of Christ. So Jesus has just finished his public ministry. Literally, he has said his last words in the open public just before, I mean, hours before the crucifixion. And John reflects for a moment, the author of the book reflects for a moment on the tragedy of unbelief of his fellow kinsmen, the Hebrew people, the people in Jerusalem. And he tells us why it happened this way. Listen to what he says carefully. John 12, verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, the, the final things that he said in his ministry, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. John says, Isaiah said these things in his book 700 years before he, John wrote this because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So this second passage that is quoted by John from the book of Isaiah, the one that I, is, is actually connected to, it's in the same chapter of the Bible, Isaiah 6, that I just read. It is a prophetic explanation for why people responded to Jesus with unbelief. Why they responded to the Son of God manifesting himself through all these different signs with unbelief. And so when John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, he's talking about Jesus. This is a vision of Christ. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at Isaiah 6, pull it apart, explore this passage, and I want to see what Isaiah saw. I want to see the glory that he saw that caused him to to speak of him, to write of him. I want to see the glory of Jesus. And I think when we see the glory of Jesus in this passage, we will understand with great intimacy why the centrality of Christ is so important to our church, why it's so important not just to our church, 
why it's so important to everyone. In fact, I think what we'll see here is that God's glory in Christ Jesus, the beauty of God seen in Christ, is central not just to human beings, but it is central to God himself. God considers Christ central. God's main pursuit in history has been to show this reality. And I think our goal today is to see if that's true or not. So Isaiah 6, verse 1, we'll start there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we have a contrast in this first verse, a contrast between two kings. King Uzziah is dead, but the Lord isn't. He is not dead. Uzziah is buried in the ground, but the Lord, Adonai in Hebrew, is high and lifted up. This is the first picture of glory that we see of this Lord on the throne, who we've been told by John is the same glory as the glory of Jesus Christ when he preached in in Israel 2,000 years ago. And this glory that we see here is that the Lord on the throne is unmatched in power and authority. Isaiah's king is dead, and every king is dead, will be dead at some point. But God is not and will never be. The Lord is always on the throne, and he tells us here, he is high and lifted up. In in the midst of all of these other kings in the world who may feel very, very good about their positions, the Lord, Adonai, is high and lifted up. And above his throne, there is no throne. Above his governance, there is no governance. He is supreme in his authority. He is supreme in his power, without equal. He's it. He's the last. There's nobody above him. And we see this throughout all of the prophets. This is a recurring theme about God's supremacy and power and authority throughout every prophet, I believe. Um, But I want to look at this one in Isaiah 46. This is a passage that will pull this uh, reality out for us and look at it um, specifically in, in regards to his sovereignty. Isaiah 46 says this. This is God talking. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This passage says that to declare the end from the beginning with absolute confidence, absolute certainty and accomplish it means to be, that's what it means to be God. That's what it means to be God. That's why he says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. And then explains, let me tell you what that means. It means I can declare the end from the beginning and make it happen. That's the kind of God that I am. 
he is displaying for us in this passage God's godness by saying that he is sovereign over these things. My counsel will always stand. His purpose will always be accomplished. If, if, if it didn't, he's saying here in this passage that you couldn't call me God. That's what it means for me to be God is for me to be able to accomplish my purposes. So he is casting this picture of God's sovereignty in all things. It is essential to him being God in this passage. And even more than that, it says that everything that God brings to pass has a purpose, has intent, has meaning to it. It's not meaningless. And this is a big deal for us, for people who live in a world racked by sorrow, racked by tragedy, racked by pain that we experience in our own lives, people we love who are lost out there, people we love who pass away in a world racked by suffering, to know that nothing is meaningless is a massive reality. And that's what this is saying here. God isn't surprised when things in our lives go tragically sideways. He's not shocked. He's not caught off guard. And nothing in our lives is without meaning or purpose. God is saw to it. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have questions. That doesn't mean that we can't weep when we lose people in our lives or when things horrible happen to us. We can and we should weep over those things. But this does tell us that no matter what tragedy might strike us in this world, because he is on the throne, no matter how deep the blade cuts into our lives, and it will cut deep sometimes, no matter how deep it cuts underneath all of our sorrow, God is working out a divine purpose. And that purpose, when it comes to the children of God, when it comes to his people, that purpose is always and ultimately for our good. It is for our good, and it is for his glory. And we may not, as we look at the situation, see any good in it at all. But what this passage says is God sees a good on the other side of it, and he is, he is pursuing that good for us. He sees it, and he will pursue it. So Isaiah 6, this reality of the king, um, God on the throne, other kings in this world will pass away. They will die. Leaders in this world will lose their power one day. There's an expiration on their power. Think about it, 150, 200 years from now, the leaders of this world will be gone and new ones will be here. But the Lord will still be on the throne. He will still be on the throne and he will accomplish all that he purposes. But that's not all what verse one tells us. Verse 1 also says that the train of his robe filled the temple. So the Lord on his throne has a robe. He has a, some kind of extravagant, immense, glorious robe, so massive, so extravagant, so beautiful that it literally fills the entire temple. It fills the temple. And what this is, is this is a picture of God's grandeur and beauty. It's a picture of his splendor, what it looks like to look at the most glorious being in the world. That's what this robe, this hem that fills the entire temple means. 
this Lord on the throne is matchless in beauty. He's matchless in beauty. There is nothing like him, nothing like him. All the beauty that we see in the universe, like in our world and in the stars, all the beauty that we see, the, the radiance of the stars. For, we got a lot of campers here. Go out in the middle of nowhere, look up at the sky, and you will be very impressed with what you see. The cosmos stretched out there. All the glory and beauty that we see in those things, or even in like flowers or the leaves change. I was talking to Joe earlier about the leaves changing and the trees and all the beauty that's in nature around us. Mountains. I mean, yesterday was a clear day. I'm driving down Willows to get into Redmond, and guess what I see? Rainier. Massive and unwavering. Sunsets, sunrises. These are things that make our heart shout for joy. And they happen in the world every day. All of these things, all of these things together are infinitely less beautiful than this Lord on the throne. Infinitely less beautiful. That's the picture that's being communicated by this robe filling the entirety of the temple. Listen to Isaiah 40. To whom then will you compare me? This is God talking. That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's talking about stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The reason the sky looks like it does on a clear summer night is to point to the one who made the sky and everything in it. That's why it looks that way. It is to say, if this is breathtaking, what must the one who made it be like? What is he like? All beauty in this world, all glory, everything we we are so enamored about in this world that we should be, it's wonderful. All of that is derivative. It's derivative. It's it's contingent. It's It's not intrinsic beauty. It is contingent and derivative. It comes from a source, and it comes from him. It points to him. The amazing grandeur of all creation is designed to say, think about the one who made this. Consider him. Enjoy him. Embrace him. And so in this first verse alone, we have two pictures. We have a picture of God's limitless authority, everything he uh, purposes he will accomplish. And we have a picture of, uh, he's high and lifted up, and we have a picture of his, his matchless beauty. His robe fills the temple. And we are seeing now a little bit of what Isaiah saw here when he saw the glory and spoke of it. But there's another picture, and it's this scene. It involves these, these beings called seraphim. And in Hebrew, the word seraphim literally means burning ones, burning ones. So clearly they're supernatural creatures. Here's verse 2. Above him, that is above the Lord, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
This is a strange and extraordinary scene. So what's happening? What's going on in this scene? The Lord is on the throne, and he's being worshipped by these beings that, to me at least, are virtually indescribable. He does a decent job, I guess. The seraphim have six wings. Two, they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet. And then they're flying around with the other two and calling out with loud voices this praise to each other back and forth. They're praising the Lord on the throne. They're saying, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So what's happening here? What's going on here? Think about this for a moment. These beings are so powerful, are so great in strength and glory that even their voices calling out to one another are shaking the temple. I mean, shaking it so much, it seems as though this temple is going to come down. Smoke is filling the air. Thresholds are shaking. And they're crying out this praise. They are immensely powerful beings, yet look how they're depicted here with their wings. Despite being awesome in glory, they are so in awe of the Lord on the throne, so taken aback by his splendor and his beauty and his awesome power that they cover their heads and their feet as they worship. This is a, an act of humility. It's an act of reverence. It's, a, it's, it's almost an act of being ashamed. These are sinless beings in the presence of Almighty God and they don't want him to see their face, and they don't want him to see their feet. These burning ones, and they cry out, holy, holy, holy. This refrain over and over again, the, the word in Hebrew is kadash. Kadash is the word for holy, and the word in Hebrew, some of you know this already, doesn't just mean morally pure or morally righteous. It entails that for sure, but it doesn't just mean that. Holy, holy, holy is more than just simple ethical behavior. To be holy in Hebrew, kadosh, is to be set apart for God, to be dedicated to God and his purposes. It means to be cut off from all other things in this world and to be committed to the purposes of God. That's what holy means in this passage set apart for God. But then a question emerges, right? Because they're referring to God as they say this. Why use the word holy, set apart for God, to describe God? What are they getting at here? How are we to understand this? How is God holy? And not only is he holy, they say it three times. Holy, 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 which is like a superlative. It's to say that he's not just simply holy. And, he, and even if we said holy, holy, he still, it would still be so far beyond that. We need to say it three times for you to get the idea. He is holy, holy, holy. And they mean that he is the most holy of all things. There is nothing like him in holiness. So what does it mean to describe God as being set apart for God? This is what it means. God is intrinsically distinct and separate from all other things in the universe. Everything. He is one of a kind. For God to be holy means there isn't anything like him ever, always. He is absolutely unique, and it speaks to his worth. It speaks to his value. The delta between God's value 
in the value of everything else in the universe, seven billion human beings on a planet, and all of the cosmos, the delta between God's value and that is infinite. Infinite. He is unique in his power and his worth and his value. God's holiness talks of, speaks of, points to his superiority in power. We saw that at the beginning. It points to his superiority in beauty and in grandeur. But it communicates a massive divide between God's intrinsic value and worth and ours. There is literally nothing like him. The prophet Daniel records this concept being declared by Nebuchadnezzar um, a king who had po- boasted that he was better than the Most High and then was suddenly humiliated. And this king, when he comes to his reasoning, has a few things to say about God. And I think we should listen very closely. It's Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or even say to him, what have you done? None. Nebuchadnezzar says that all the inhabitants of the earth, grab all of them from all time, beginning and end, put them together, every human being ever in the world, on one side of the scale, and then put God on the other, and it's like there's nothing on the other side of the scale. And Isaiah would actually say that Nebuchadnezzar is being a little bit gracious to humanity. This is an overestimation to say nothing. Listen to Isaiah 40, 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Accounted by him as less than nothing. Which is to say that all of creation, I mean, when we're talking about the worth and beauty and glory of God, all of creation, all of its people, all of its places, in fact, every galaxy in the universe all of it, every single thing in those galaxies are nothing compared to him. They are nothing compared to him. Less than emptiness compared to this Lord that is on the throne in Isaiah 6. It's like the difference between substance in reality and a shadow. It's like the difference between a, a physical object and a vapor. That's the difference. There's an infinite divide between the value of God and us. That's what it means for God to be holy, holy, holy. That's why these seraphim are singing this and crying out. Most people in the world do not feel this. Be real with you. Most people in the world do not feel the weight of this reality. And therefore, they will relegate God to a, a position of being like a genie. Got a prayer. Can you answer it for me? Or worse than that, Fiction. I don't think you're real. 
most of the world, most people in the world do not feel the weight of this reality. But these seraphim feel it. They are not confused at all about it. And that's why they are constantly worshiping, lest for a millisecond, this God does not get the praise that he deserves rightly. And their cry continues, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, which is an interesting transition. Have you ever looked at this and thought about the transition? Lord is holy, but the earth is full of his glory. Why is there a difference here? How is the holiness of God resulting in the earth being filled with his glory? Why is there a distinction here in the language? And I think the answer to that question is in what glory is in the Bible. The word glory, in Hebrew specifically, means weight. It's the word kavod. It means weight. It's the value, the weight of something. It is the the intrinsic value of something. And so glory here is God's holiness. It's his infinitely distinctive reality. Like he is absolute reality. Everything else is contingent on him. That holiness, when it is shown in the world, when it is communicated through him, is glory. That's what glory is. The value of something being communicated and God's glory is his holiness being put on display. And For the earth to be full of his glory is to say that the reality of God's worth, the reality and the truthfulness of God's value, objectively, must fill the entire planet. It must fill the entire planet. It must be known by all creatures and all creation, no matter how small or no matter how great, that this God really is this worthy. And Isaiah 6, and really all of Scripture, like front to back, this book, are filled with images and commands and encouragements and invitations for this to be true, for the earth to be filled with this kind of glory. The God of the Bible is actively seeking and actively pursuing this statement by the seraphim to be real that everyone would see his worth as it rightly needs to be seen. That God would be central to us. He is actively pursuing that. The reason that Isaiah had this vision wasn't for him to respond to it with apathy or boredom. That wasn't why. It was for him to see the glory of God and for him to make that glory central in his life. And this highlights God's main pursuit, his main goal in everything he does. God's ultimate goal in all that he accomplishes is this reality, his glory, for it to be seen, embraced, and enjoyed. God is in pursuit of his glory and his praise. And for me, when I was first told that, and I think for a lot of people, when you hear that, at first blush, it seems to be an inaccurate depiction of God. It seems to be improper. Because Honestly, when I see other people in this world pursuing their own glory, I do not find them admirable, and I do not find them noble. This doesn't seem like a good endeavor. Yet, 
Scripture after Scripture, throughout redemptive history, this reality is constantly displayed. God has never hidden it. He has showcased, I am pursuing in the world my own glory. It is all over Scripture. I'm going to give you a few examples today. Number one, why does God have us as children, or any children? Why does he invite people into his family? He tells us in Isaiah 48, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. The reason God has sons and daughters is for his glory. What about Israel, his chosen people, a people that the prophets are constantly engaging about their sinfulness and trying to get them out of their addiction to false gods? These people that God has called to cling to him. Jeremiah 13 says, For as a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah, cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Israel was chosen by God so that they would be a name, a praise, and a glory. God wants to be known through Israel. And if Israel were to reflect on it and say, actually, I think it's because we're really great. It's our intrinsic value that God has, has seen in us. That's why he wants to care for us. That's why he wants to protect us. God reminds them in Ezekiel 36 that that's not the case. Listen to what he says here. Therefore, I say to the, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my holy, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, he declares, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In Isaiah 48, probably the most central passage on God's focus on his own glory in the entire book of the Bible, um, says something similar to the passage we just read. God is telling Israel why they're being shown mercy despite their great repeated sinfulness, their repeated rejection of him as their king. This is why he is deferring his anger. Listen to what he says here. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not give his glory to anyone. It is his glory. This could not be any clearer. And we could be here for the next 
four hours and I could roll hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of texts. You probably are thinking of them now for the sake of my name, for the sake of Jesus Christ. They are everywhere in scripture and all of them are pushing towards this reality. This is the ultimate reason that God operates and functions in the world for the sake of his name. And that's the purpose of the vision of Isaiah. And that's the purpose of Jesus's ministry. It is for the glory of God. Um, the passage that we read from the beginning in John, where he's reflecting on the, the relationship between Isaiah 6, which he knew growing up, growing up, and what he's just seen played out for three years in the life of Jesus, rejection, rejection, rejection. He's seeing now that the rejection of the glory of Jesus Christ is the same way that the people of Israel rejected the glory of God. And the desire that Isaiah has upon seeing this glory is that God would be central in his life. Central in his life. And at first it might seem, I'm going to go back to this, unloving. And it might, be, feel, it might feel selfish for God to do this. If any person uh, in the world were to do this, to live for their own glory, we would call them arrogant, right? They would be egocentric, megalomaniacal. We, we, this is not a likable quality, but is this true about God? Is God actually expressing arrogance when he does this? Is it? And I think we would respond with a resounding no. No, he's not. Although God does seek his glory in every single thing he does, there are real reasons that he does it beyond or included in his pursuit of glory. Because in his pursuit of glory, we find that God is actually pursuing us and inviting us into his love. Here are, here are three reasons why God pursuing his glory are not the same as somebody out here or myself. If I were to go out there and say, I'm going to make a name for myself. Here's three reasons why. First, for God to exalt anything above himself would be a sin. It would be a lie because he is actually objectively worthy of these things. He is objectively worthy to seek his own praise is to respond to his glory rightly. God's worth is the highest value in the universe. To not seek it would be to defy the truth about who he is. And to regard it as anything other than infinitely beautiful is to regard it as nothing. God refuses to do that. The second reason is that all value in creation, everything that we enjoy, and we talked about this a little bit, everything we enjoy in this life, our families, our kids, all of the value that we get from everything that is in our lives hangs on the worth of God. Like a picture hanging on a nail in the wall. If God were to pursue something other than his glory as ultimate, everything else would collapse because it's all contingent on his glory being what it is. Their value, the value of all the things that we treasure in this life, are contingent on God in his own glory. If we remove the source, every derivative of his glory, wonderful as they might be, comes falling down. They lose their worth. Their values 
caught up in whether he is exalted or not. But number three, and this is the one that I want to focus on as we close, there is a third reason that God in pursuing his own glory is so vital, so essential for us to understand. And that is this, that in his pursuit of glory, God is committing himself to the greatest act of love imaginable. He is giving himself over to the greatest act of love imaginable, such that if he did not pursue his glory ultimately, it would be unloving to us. It would be unloving. Listen to Isaiah 30. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy, to show mercy to you. God exalts himself to show us mercy. In God's pursuit of his own glory, he is also pursuing us. He is pursuing us. If it is only those, think about this, if it is only those who call upon the name of the Lord that are saved, then that name must be lifted very high so that people would call upon it. No one calls upon it if you bury it in the sand. And that's what this passage means. God's grace and God's love for his people is rooted in the pursuit of his own glory. Here's another example, Isaiah Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This is ultimately why God forgives And it it doesn't, this is what we need to get, it does not diminish his love for us in the least. It doesn't. In fact, it anchors his love in his objective worth and value. If God looked in us for a reason to forgive us, he would never find it. He wouldn't. But you know what he does? He doesn't look in us for a reason to forgive us. He looks into his own glory. And he has more than enough reason in his glory to forgive us. He, in the exaltation of his grace, he not only secures our forgiveness, but he protects the treasure that our forgiveness points to. We're not forgiven just to be forgiven. We're forgiven to get God. And when we get God, we get an exalted God who is the greatest treasure in the universe. This means two huge things. I mean, two things that are so critical for us to get. And I hope that you listen closely because I needed to hear both of these things this week. I needed desperately to hear these things. Here they are. First, number one is your performance isn't what causes God to love you. Let me say that again. It isn't your performance that causes God to love you. It's his performance. He is the reason he loves you. God's love for you does not ultimately depend on how much you do, what you can do for him, what, what kinds of things you can make happen for his name. That doesn't, that doesn't, it's not contingent on your worth. Your value is what he gives you. God's love is free and it is not contingent any day of the week on your deservedness, no matter what we might feel. Deserve it or not, and we don't deserve it, God still loves us. His love for us is contingent on himself. That's great news. That's great news when you have a bad week. 
or day or minute or whatever you have that's bad. That's great news. The second thing is this. In pursuing his own glory, and I hinted at this earlier, God is securing for his people the single greatest treasure in the universe. He is protecting and securing the greatest joy that we can possibly have. And that joy is the very glory that he has sought all along. It's his worth and value. Which brings us back to Isaiah 6 and this scene in the throne room. You recall when I first read it, how Isaiah responded to this event that's being portrayed in front of him, to the immensity of the glory of God. Well, verse 5 tells us, And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, look, <laughs> this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. Just like that. So in the presence of God, the God that we've seen today, infinite in power, infinite in beauty, infinite in value and worth, utterly distinct, incomparable, Isaiah realizes his immense unworthiness. This is, what, this is the re- human response to what he saw. A catastrophic, soul-rending event to see the living God in all of his glory. And so he pronounces here, that's what this woe is me is. It's a curse over himself. He doesn't wait for anybody to pronounce it. He knows the difference here. He pronounces it and then says, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of of people of unclean lips. He's saying, I'm a sinner. I have no right to be near this God. Not a single millisecond near this God. I am a sinner. And he may rightly expect to be incinerated in the holiness of, of God's glory and value and worth. But instead, a seraphim who's been singing about the holiness of God removes the coal from the altar with a tongue and touches Isaiah's lips, and he is forgiven. Forgiven. A coal from the altar cleanses Isaiah's sin, it atones for him. Despite years, this is what Isaiah was saying when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, years of dishonoring God. Years of treating God as less valuable than the vision showed. Year after year after year after year. And in a moment, God personally secures his atonement. And so we need to consider this for a moment because I don't think this falls on us with the weight that it needs to. We read this and we're like, yeah, that, that happens. God forgives people. It's his job. It's not his job. It's a miracle that this happens. After all we've seen of God and all we know about our own human nature, God's matchless beauty and glory and worth, 
in us. Isaiah should be gone. His statement, woe is me, is not inaccurate. He's telling the truth, but he isn't gone. He's forgiven in this massive display of God's exaltation of glory. He receives mercy. That's an awesome thing. And in this scene, we are given a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. We are given a picture of why Jesus Christ is central to risen hope and why he's central to every church in the world and why he should be central to all of creation for all time. And we know that this is a picture of the cross, not only because of the atonement scene that we see here, but because when Jesus was going to the cross himself, he said, the reason I'm going there is for my Father to be glorified. I'm going there for the glory of God. Listen to John 12. This is Jesus. Shortly before the... uh, the passage we read earlier. Now is my soul troubled, he says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I love this. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Jesus is headed towards the cross. This is the hour that he's talking about. This is the reason he was born. He was born to die. He was born to suffocate six hours, six hours on a tree just outside of Jerusalem. This is why he came into the world. It was this hour. He was born to endure not just the physical pain, but separation from God, God's justice, God's punishment, God's wrath. And as he faces the reality that is before him, of what it's going to be like to be torn from his father's gladness inside. He says, now is my soul troubled. When God the Son says that, you know something is going on. Now is my soul troubled. Yet in this hour, he also knows that his father's name will be exalted. It will be glorified. It will be lifted up. His Father's name will be lifted up on this cross because on the cross, God's glory is exalted the highest. It is made to be most beautiful on the cross of Jesus Christ because God's mercy and grace, the apex of his glory, is lifted up very high when God offers his Son as a sacrifice for sinners. Nowhere else is it lifted like this. Nowhere else is God magnified the way he is here. Because when Christ is on the cross, he vindicates God's holiness and worth by paying for all the times that we did not treat God the way we ought to. He makes God's value real by suffering the penalty for all the times we dishonored God when we should have treated him with honor. That's what happens here. That's what the cross accomplished God's infinite worth, everything we've seen today, has been trampled and dishonored for generations. That's hard. Those are hard words. But think about the God we talked about today. Think about how glorious and how awesome he is and recognize that maybe sometimes it's not even till noon that you actually think that there is a God. Maybe sometimes you go through the entire day and you're like, oh yeah, there's a God. 
who caused me to get through the entire day to begin with. And that's called injustice. In fact, it's the greatest injustice in the world. To, di- to dishonor a being of infinite worth is to incur, be liable for infinite punishment. That's what that is. And what Jesus does on the cross is he runs headlong into that punishment and says, no. Because I love you and for the glory of my Father, that will not happen. I will take this punishment on my, my own. And so the centrality of Christ is a big deal for us because the centrality of Christ is a big deal for God. It is the biggest deal for God. He exalts his name so that we would receive mercy. That's what's happening here. So in the next few minutes when we participate in communion, and and if you are a, a person who has their faith in Christ, I invite you to participate. I invite you to receive the elements which represent this cross. It represents the apex of God's glory in human history when he put his son on display and said, I'm going to love you like this. I'm going to come after you. And in that moment, I will be exalted and glorified so that you have a greater treasure than you could possibly imagine. And so as we worship together, let's join God in the exaltation of his own name. Let's join him in the exaltation of his work on the cross because in enjoying God, we are glorifying and magnifying him. He is being treated with the greatest honor when we value him over everything else. The Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy. Let's pray. Father, when we look at the centrality of of Christ and when we look at your glory, we are looking at the very center of all things. We are looking at the source of all that we see here, your worth, your value, your glory, and we are looking at the focus of all that exists, that, that we would point to you, that we would cherish you, that we would treasure you. And this is humanly impossible for me to communicate and for all of us to hear. It is humanly impossible for us to understand and comprehend this in the way that we ought to. And so my, my prayer to you, Father God, my plea to you for this pillar and for every pillar to come over the next few weeks is for you to open the eyes of our hearts. We need your Holy Spirit to pull back the blinders of our own distractions, of our own selfishness, of our own sin, and in our own preoccupation with things other than you and open our eyes to see you. A Lord who is seated high on the throne, high and lifted up. A Lord who is matchless in beauty. There's no one like you. And a Lord whose intrinsic worth is beyond all comparison, infinitely worthy. Invite our hearts into this reality, Father God. We need to feel it. We need to taste it. We need to experience it, Father. As we sing songs, as we participate in communion, 
do this great work by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.